I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Earlier this week, I was interviewed on Remnant Radio on the topic of violence in the Old Testament and just understanding those concepts and passages better, dealing with challenges and tough ideas. Um, In the same interview that you're about to see, we also get into a whole section of discussion on um, how some people try to reinterpret the Bible, I think, in a very bad way. It's called the Cruciform Hermeneutic, and it's been championed by a gentleman named Greg Boyd. So we're going to deal with that in detail after we deal with some of these passages as well. I hope this is really fruitful for you. I will get into these topics in more detail in the future on my channel. I can't tell you when, but it will happen. Consider this like a good introduction and a maybe maybe a little bit of help as you're kind of thinking through these things. If you're interested in Remnant Radio, the people who interviewed me, I'll put a link in the description to their YouTube channel as well. Hey everybody, this is Joshua Lewis with Remnant mm. Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We've got an exciting episode with Mike Winger. We're going to be talking about the God of the Old Testament, the kind of congruency between Jesus in the New Testament and God in the Old Testament, as if Jesus isn't God. That was a, a slip of the tongue. God in the New Testament and God in the Old Testament. Is that yeah, the yeah. most orthodox way Just of saying the, that? The, the <laughs> Mike's over there already semi- writing a list of things to correct. <laughs> No, that was wrong. I already got to fix something there. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we're looking forward to this interview today. Uh, Mike has been on the show twice before. He's come on to talk about, uh, we did a uh, eschatology video where uh, you uh, debated kind of a futurist view of eschatology. And then you've also come on to do a water baptism episode uh, early on on, when we were on YouTube. So Yeah, those are two totally different episodes. And this one is going to be... Yeah, totally different. Right than the others, yeah. in that lane of randomness. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, Mike, uh, for those who aren't familiar with you, tell us a little about yourself and your ministry before we dive in. Um, okay. Well, I, I do online ministry where I teach uh, theology and apologetics. And that means, you know, what we believe as Christians, especially giving emphasis to scripture. I want to know what does the Bible actually teach about things. And um, I'm, I'm really committed to that specific adventure. Of discovering what scripture teaches you know do you have really do you really have verses to support this and also apologetics which is giving a defense of the christian faith like why should i believe this is true or or maybe a better way to put it is um do we have evidential support to bolster our confidence in the things that we uh, that we believe as christians and so i present that kind of stuff as well so i do videos twice a week it's all free content and it's all there just to build up and equip and edify and strengthen people um, and God's really been blessing it. Um, right now the YouTube channel has been growing. It's like, um, it's coming up close to a hundred thousand views probably by the end of the year. It'll be a hundred, I mean, a hundred thousand subscribers, not views. That's insane. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, and I'm, so. I'm, uh, this is the first time I've actually gotten to meet you, but I'm a, a huge fan of the podcast and watched several episodes. So I'm super oh, grateful awesome. for you doing this. We love your Romans nine. We, we recommend it regularly. We've got a pastor friend that's a mutual friend of ours and, uh, uh, he'll go, we're going through Romans nine and he's like, I don't know about this. Uh, and then we're, we're kind of breaking it apart and using your stuff and Leighton's stuff who was on yeah. last week, uh, which was fun. So, Hey, let's dive into right our topic on. today. Uh, if we can, <clears throat> we yep. want to talk about, uh, I want to talk more about the congruency. There's a lot of, uh, uh, accusations made at Jesus in the new Testament that Jesus is somehow rewriting the narrative of the old Testament, how the old Testament God is some kind of vengeful, angry, unforgiving God. And Jesus in the New Testament is this merciful Savior who is just not a, an ounce of judgment. You know, sin not lest 
or not, no, judge not lest ye be judged, Jesus, right? Uh, and there is, uh, promoted by the world, promoted by people in the church, we we have a, a bit of a propaganda of making Jesus like this really, really nice guy, and God of the Old Testament is a really, really mean guy, but we believe that they're all one and the same God, so we're going to have a fun time dialoguing about this. Uh, let us know, so when you come to this topic, you've done some work on uh, atonement theory that we're also very appreciative of, uh, and that kind of ties into some of this conversation, so maybe... Uh, Talk to us a little bit about atonement theory so that we can kind of jump into some of the questions that we have prepped for you. Okay. Um, I'm not I'm really sure where to, where to launch from with that, sure. that kind of Broadness. summary because they feel like they're sort of two different subjects to me. I feel like when, when people try to, I'll, I'll address the first one first, uh, people try to say that, say, Jesus is offering us some sort of alternate version of God mm-hmm. that's different than the Old Testament. This works if you don't pay close attention to scripture. But if you're actually reading the Bible and you're in it carefully, you realize that this this doesn't work. This doesn't fit the Old Testament. Like when you describe the God of the Old Testament as a sort of one-sided, like mean, you know, malicious kind of evil thing, that 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 this is simply a misnomer. In fact, the phrase "the God of the Old Testament" is an unchristian, theologically That's wrong right. phrase, as opposed to just right? the God of the Bible. Or yeah, well, or God. rather, the God. <laughs> He's just God. He's like, God. Yeah. He is. And in the Old and the New Testament, we have accurate revelation of God. And this is something that you you have to know Jesus would affirm that the Old Testament gives us an accurate revelation of God. The New Testament gives us an accurate revelation of God. But some want to say Jesus gives us the fullest revelation of God so we can use Jesus to tell us where the Old Testament got it wrong. But we'll get more into that a little bit later. I was, I'll say that this, this to me is unconscionable. I, I can't swallow that kind of theology. And when you tease it out and think about it carefully – you see that it just it seems like it just breaks down at several points. I suppose where I was thinking of like penal substitution is that a lot of people are saying that Jesus is saving us from God. And that in itself is kind of a misrepresentation. It, it pits the eternal triune God against himself. And I think that yes. that uh, I think that's the congruency that I see in this conversation is that Jesus is himself uh, God. And so he's not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree with you there. I, and, and a lot of the debate on penal substitution comes down to it ends up being rhetorical trickery in a sense. Sure. Um, so, yeah, well, I, I just don't think Jesus saved us from his angry father. And I'll be like, yeah, well, me neither. You know, I mean, that's just not that's just not the doctrine. That's a caricature of it. Um, so, you know, Jesus saved us from the just consequences of our sin, which would be expressed in God's wrath upon us. But God, the Father, the Spirit and the Son are united in both wrath towards sin and grace towards sinners. Both of those elements are, are in the whole of who God is. So there's no separation there between the father and the son. Um, that's just kind of a, a waste of time to even go down okay. that road. So it is, yeah. it is two conversations, but one obviously leads to the other. Um, and I think it's the same, same thing playing out in that we're trying to get God off the hook from appearing evil. God the Father. And that, that's really where it, it boils down to, which if you've read um, any Greg Boyd, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, I mean, all of his literature, open theism is in a sense a way to get God off the hook. So, anyway. Yeah, I think now I, now I want to be fair and say some open theists would totally argue with, with us right here and they'd say that's not the purpose of my open theism. Sure, sure. But, but let's say we're not talking about those guys. We're talking yeah. about the other ones because there is a group who will use open theism, this idea that um, God isn't doesn't know the future, doesn't know exactly what will happen in the future. He just knows what could happen and um, has a plan for every possible eventuality. Um, so, well, 
the uh, the idea though is yeah we're, we're gonna we're gonna use that to sort of say well God couldn't help it some of these things and I think that there's there's a lot of problems with this for one um, God isn't subject to our moral refutations I, I mean just from the outset the scripture tells us the fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom and I think we should start in a place that says God if you tell me that you judge sin. I don't look at you and say, you're evil. I look at me and say, wow, my sin must be really bad. And this is such a really basic level of, of respect towards God and honoring towards the God who created all things, who is the grounding of all moral truth. I mean, there's a, there's a reason right there why we don't do this. We say God is the grounding of all moral truth. It's not, he's not capable of error morally. He's just not capable of it. So if God reveals to us that he judges sin or that he punishes wickedness, we, we are the greatest of fools to look at him and say, well, something must be wrong with you. In reality, we're looking at ourselves and saying something must be wrong with us. If God really judges sin and it's that bad, there must be something really bad with us. Because it's simple wisdom to think God's right, I'm wrong. If there's a conflict between my opinion and him, I'm wrong. <laughs> this, is, this is like a good starting point for just reality. Um, and God has a right to judge sin. and has a right to do what he wants with his creation. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, he says, I kill and I make alive. And he, and he lays this on his identity. He goes, see now that I, even I am he, and there's no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there's none who can deliver out of my hand. Now, if you think that's an evil God, I would say, no, that, that's, that's the uh, moral judge of the universe is what that is. Now, if you want to call it representation evil, of sovereignty. A, yeah, it's, it's a great um, fundamental flaw in reasoning to think that you can come to God and, and label him with moral error. Yeah, but that's already from the start. We've already got that going on. So let's let's do that. We'll play the devil's advocate and we'll we'll toss questions at you uh, in, in such a way. So I want to make sure this is clear. If anyone goes back and takes little clips out of this video, no, we're not we're not we're not suggesting these are the things. But here are the accusations that are tossed against um, Jesus. For example, uh, in John chapter eight, there's a woman caught in the act of adultery. Right. Uh, she's tossed at Jesus's feet. Uh, Jesus sees the woman that's caught in the act of adultery. Uh, he writes something in the sand, tells, you know, uh, you without sin, cast the first stone kind of thing. And mm -hmm. uh, they all disperse. But Deuteronomy says that we're supposed to stone people who are caught in the act of adultery. What's what's going on with this? Why does Jesus let this woman off of the hook for breaking the law when there seems to be a consequence? Doesn't that create a discontinuity between uh, God in the old and God in the new? Yeah. Well, let me, let me say it, it does create a discontinuity between what we deserve and what we get, right? <laughs> There's the discontinuity, right? What we deserve and what we get. And Jesus is giving us that discontinuity and his, the cross justifies it. But let me give you a bunch of stuff real quick on that passage. We could talk about it all night, but we have a lot of things, lots of things to talk about. So um, one thing I'll say is we, we shouldn't approach the law with the phrase, God told us to stone such and such people. Because the law was never given to all people for all time. This is not the purpose of the law. And so a full orb understanding of the New Testament gives us an understanding of the law. We get this in Romans. We get this in Hebrews where we, we see the typology of Christ. We see the, the, in Galatians, it's a tutor that leads us to Christ. All that to say, I'm not under the law. So when I see the commands to stone, I learn from them. But I don't say this is what I do in all cultures for all time. Um, but there's a few other problems with this. Um, with this using this passage that way. One of them is that, and this is, this is gets into hot water quick uh, in John eight verses one through 11. This is very likely not original in the gospel of John. 
Now, this is one of the few passages, uh, you know, here, the ending of Mark. Mark, Mark is debated. Mark has more evidence that it's original. John 8, most, almost everybody agrees, is not actually original to the Gospel of John. And so we, we look at that and we say, uh, long story short, historically, it's probably a true story about Jesus, probably. But to call it authoritative scripture is, um, is perhaps problematic. And so I have a whole video on this. And on three videos on like textual problems and how we got our New Testament and has it changed over time, all that kind of stuff. I deal with it all. But that, that to say, I don't want to build a whole theological construct off this passage for that reason. That, that it's because of how it. highly debated it is and what, yeah, whether or not yeah. it, it should be in there. Yeah. And in a sense, I want to say this John passage isn't even hotly debated for the most part. Yeah. I mean, uh, we've got guys like, uh, like uh, Todd White. Not Todd White. That doesn't sound right. Um, James White. Yeah, I knew it was a White. James White won't even preach this passage. Uh, yeah. Yeah, confused Todd White and James White in a single program. This is going to have yeah, a lot of views this, this episode. <laughs> Let's not confuse those two guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. that, w- that would not be good. So, yeah. Uh, so, okay, that's just something to say. Well, there, okay. But, 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 something but else. Still, you, if we take the. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, just you, you mentioned this just a second ago about how. Um, oh, gosh, now I'm forgetting it. Uh, you were saying that. I've lost my train of thought. No, I'm so okay. sorry. I'm <laughs> so sorry. I'm, I, may, I may have to come back to that. So, so Michael, for those who don't know, got, Michael has been traveling all day. Uh, he just oh. got home. He spent like an hour with his family and then came into the studio. So, Mike, Mike what oh. were you saying? Should have stayed home, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my, <laughs> yeah. Family. Um, okay, well, here's a few things about this passage, too. Real, real briefly, I'll just run through them like a list. Um, one thing here is Jesus does not rebuke the law in any way, shape, or form. He rebukes the mob trying to abuse the law for mob violence. Um, See, the law would require them to take her before legitimate judges and elders who Mm. would then hear a case, weigh the evidence, and then make a decision about uh, stoning her or not. So what the the mob is doing is they're they're trying in this passage, they're trying to kill a woman. Uh, Really, they're trying to get Jesus in hot water with Rome because they weren't allowed to, to execute people under the Roman law. So again, we have legal precedents in the Old Testament for when you're when you're under the oppression of a foreign government, you submit to those laws. And so there's even another law related reason reason not to stone this woman. But there's some possible other points going on too. Um, the overall view I get from this is that though the woman deserved to be stoned through Jesus, you can be forgiven of that which you were condemned for under the law. And that is entirely gospel centered. That is, you did deserve the judgment, but Christ sets you free. And also that taking the law into your own hands, that you're going to be the, without governmental, proper governmental authority, but you're going to be the vigilante, just going out to just kill these people because God's law says so, is something Jesus refutes. And he puts a standard and says, yeah, you just have to be morally perfect if you're going to be able to do that. You know, he who's without sin cast the first stone. So this is actually not even different than the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, King David was condemned under the law for committing murder and adultery. But we read that he was forgiven simply by God's total grace. It wasn't, so the law properly condemns, it shows us our sin, but it leads us to humility and contrition so that we'll have a broken and contrite hearts, as David says, when he repents over this adultery and murder. So it's consistent Old and New Testament. And that's what we need to do. We need to take and not try to pit Jesus against the scriptures, but realize he said, I come to fulfill, not to like abolish his words. They're not mine. So regardless of whether you think the uh, text is original or not, there's still an explanation for it and how yeah. it's completely exactly. within continuity. So Yeah, there's so, there's no way to take it the way that someone to use it to leverage Jesus' 
combating the Old Testament. No, no, he's combating a, a mob crowd who's abusing the Old Testament, and he's also revealing God's grace. Speaking of Jesus saying, I'm not here to nullify the law, let's go to Matthew chapter 5, where it seems as if he's like, hey, I'm not here to nullify the law, but uh, the law says this, and I say this. He seems to contrast himself with what the law says. The law says, hey, uh, don't, don't, uh, don't break your oaths. Jesus is like, hey, don't even make an oath. Uh, the law says, uh, you, or well, he said, you've heard it say uh, that you should, you know, hate your enemies. I'm telling you, love your enemies. He he gives this contrast of what the law says versus what he says. So turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. These are things that it seems as if Jesus is either adding to or contradicting all entirely uh, the Old Testament. Your thoughts, sir? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to say, and uh, you're playing what you you call devil's advocate. Um, you're so, not comfortable with that term. I can tell. No, I, I hate that term, but, but I get what you mean. <laughs> Um, I thought about wearing I, uh, horns and putting red in the background. Would that, would that have made you more comfortable? If you did what? Put horns on and put red in the background. <laughs> yeah, that would make me even more comfortable. <laughs> no, um, what, uh, what, what I will say is to, to the way that you, because, okay, your question included certain assumptions. Right. Questions often include assumptions. And I would say those assumptions are actually wrong. Um, and I think you probably did it that way on purpose to try to showcase that side. But the idea is that the claim is that Jesus is here saying the Old Testament says this, but I tell you this, and he's disagreeing with it. Not the case. What Jesus is actually saying is you've been taught this by your rabbis and I'm correcting it now. I'm I, he's, he's adjusting it. He's, he's fixing their, their misconceptions. He's restoring a better understanding of the law. He's not changing it. And that is actually what's happening in Matthew. So you know, it starts with this um, in Matthew five nineteen, where Jesus, after he says he hasn't come to abolish, but to fulfill, he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he starts with an affirmation about the very minute details of the law. So it'd be weird if the next thing he says is, and the law is totally wrong, by the way, <laughs> like after saying, don't you dare teach otherwise. So let's talk real quick about some of the things he says. Um, in that Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard people tell you, you know, don't break your oath, you know, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I say, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne or by earth for it's his footstool. Just let your yes be yes, is what Jesus tells them, right? Well, in the context, first century, they're taking the idea where um, they're told not to break their oaths, which is a biblical thing, and they're using it as a way of saying, well, technically, what I said wasn't an oath. So I don't have to obey that one. So they're using oaths as an excuse for lying. You know, the, the people who are the most untrustworthy are often the people who are promising things the most often because they're like, I promise, I promise, I promise, because nobody believes them anymore because their normal word isn't any good. Jesus is getting rid of a, um, a misuse of the law about oaths to allow them to break their word to people. Well, I didn't make an oath, right? I made the oath by by the temple, but not by the stuff in the temple. I made the oath based on, and they would actually categorize things like how, how important is my oath? So he's refuting that. In, um, in another place here, he says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which the law does say that, right? Uh, but I say, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And here's the abuse. Um, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is a judicial law thing. It's, it's like about civil law. When you go before the judge and the judge is determining what the penalty for the crime is or the restitution in particular, you killed my sheep. What, what does the judge declare? Well, sheep for a sheep, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's about equivalency in penal law. That's the idea. And with Jesus, he's saying, 
don't use this for personal vengeance. You have a governmental law, but we recognize that's different than personal vengeance. You know, if my neighbor parks out in front of, you know, the house in front of the uh, fire hydrant, a cop could go and give my neighbor a ticket, but I can't go to my neighbor's house and demand money because they parked in front of the fire hydrant. This is an abuse of the law. I'm not in that position. Jesus is saying, yes, judicially, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but individually, how you relate to one another, I want you to turn the other cheek. And turn the other cheeks refers to an insult. So he, again, kind of like with the um, points we got from the uh, woman caught in adultery, he's, he's letting people realize the law stands as judge over us. We don't stand as judges over one another quite like that. That's, that's a different kind of thing. So in some um, sense, what they're doing here is they're misapplying the law personally. They're, they're taking it upon themselves to, to, to get back at somebody for what's been done to them. And I, I've heard this today. My family's all Jewish, and I mean, literally, I've heard those kind of comments come out. Well, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going on. And, and I think that, you know, when we remember Jesus, how he says, the problem with the Pharisees is they would add man's commands to the law of God. So Jesus here, he's not getting rid of the law. He's trying to separate the man's garbage that they added to God's law. And a great example is the next one where he says, um, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, the phrase love your neighbor is in scripture, but the phrase hate your enemy, uh-uh, mm-hmm. right? That's not in the law. So he's talking about additions to the law. They were abusing the law. So he tells them, love your enemies. And that idea of loving your enemy is actually in scripture. The Proverbs says, Proverbs says that you should be taking care of your enemy. Um, you should help them out. Exodus 23, 4 says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. So, you know, it doesn't say hate your enemies. That, that's a, uh, an abuse of the law. So Jesus is purifying and perfecting their, uh, their understanding of the law, putting it back in context. So the law can take that rightful place of showing us how sinful we are, actually, which is why Jesus actually makes the law worse in, in the perspective of showing us how sinful we are uh, in this very Sermon on the Mount when he says, oh, you've heard it said, you know, um, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look with lust, you commit adultery in your heart. So all of a sudden, it's like, oh, gosh, not only is it true that I, I shouldn't commit adultery, but it's also true that the lust in my heart is, is adultery of the heart. Um, this is where Jesus says, hey, you know, you've heard it. You've heard it said um, uh, something about uh, not not uh, blaspheming your friends or something like that. I can't remember the exact phrase right now. It's in it's in uh, around verse 21 or 20. But then he adds it and adds to it and makes it sort of worse and says, if you say to somebody, you're a fool, you'll be liable to the fire of hell. So what Jesus is doing is he's, he's removing these little escape hatches they had for how they could disobey God's intentions with the law through little technical tricks. And he's showing the heart behind the law of moral perfection that God calls us to. So it's like using the, the law as kind of an excuse to divorce your wife and upgrade to the newest model every year. Um, yeah. he's, he's saying that, no, just because the, 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 the law allots for how this is to hash out judicially, it doesn't actually make your heart right before God. Um, yes. And I'll give you a, a quick example of this. And you guys might identify with this. Um, I've watched these, uh, Prager, you guys know, Dennis Prager, Prager U videos where they talk about the 10 commandments. And when they got to the commandment on coveting, I was really interested to see what they would write because here's where Jesus, he like brings it to the next level. He's like, look, you lust in your heart. That's adultery in your heart. But when I heard Dennis Prager give his explanation of coveting, he watered it down to the point. If you listen carefully, I respect the man. It's not about me attacking him. It's just, this is how he handled that verse. Um, He watered it down to the point where coveting isn't the passionate desire 
for something you, you ought not have, but it's coveting uh, your neighbor's wife is actually trying to sleep with her in, in his interpretation. So he's kind of taking away the sort of heart immorality that God is actually trying to point out. And this is stuff that they were doing back then as well. We're, we're just watering down God's intention with the law. It's meant to reveal sin, to drive us to Christ, because on the cross we see both God's hatred for sin as well as his love for mankind. You know, we see both of those things and we don't want to minimize either of them. So do you think, um, and this is a bit off topic, well, maybe Matthew chapter seven, where he says that the, the, the scribes and Pharisees acknowledge that Jesus was teaching as one with authority, but like they're not, he's not teaching like the scribes and the Pharisees who, who are copying the law, who are writing their, their commentary around the law. This one is like, he's revealing the heart and the intention of the law. All right. Would this kind of come in line with that? Yeah, well, and there may be another element to that too about t- about teaching with authority because when you read in like the Talmud, when you actually read the Talmud, it's a lot of quoting of rabbis. Rabbi so and so said this, and Rabbi so and so said that, and Rabbi so and so said this. And sometimes the Talmud won't even take a position; it'll just quote various rabbis, so that there there was this sense in which there wasn't like the authority of what is just true, you know. And Christ comes, and he's not quoting anybody; he just tells people how it is. So he's teaching as one with authority. I've heard it That's said that the authority piece there is similar to authorship. Like the word uh, is, is, is got a similar etymology mm-hmm. that he's not teaching as someone who's copying or adding their commentary, but he's writing as someone who's written the thing as an author, authorship authority. Oh. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd have to look into that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so the second kind of follow-up question we have uh, in, in the gospels, Jesus seems to be doing things that, uh, you know, we see in the Psalms, like not to, not to have, you know, uh, to, to have company with those who are evil, don't sit in the seat of scoffers, that kind of thing. Uh, when you're hanging out with people who are sinful, when you are uh, hanging out with people who have leprosy, when the, when the woman with the issue of blood touches you, these things are supposed to make you unpure and unholy. If Jesus is God and he is this holy, spotless, blemishless lamb, how is it that he is uh, sitting with sinners? How is he allowing the unclean to touch him? Or touch a leper or have a woman who's hemorrhaging touch him and... yeah. Etc. Exactly, et and it's even more extreme when you when you look at it carefully because when when this woman with the the hemorrhage of blood touches him, technically she's unclean. Now he's unclean too, That's mm-hmm. right? Right. Technically, and not only is Jesus not unclean, but now she isn't either. She is now clean. And so the things that could make people clean in the Old Testament were were things related to the temple and the sacrificial system. And Jesus shows up as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Christ comes as the one who says. You are really unclean, but I make you clean, you know? And so he sends her away and she's clean and he's, you know, he, he, he heals Peter's mother-in-law who's sick and she gets up and starts serving them food right away. That's significant in a Jewish mentality, right? Yeah. She was sick. She's unclean for days now still. And, but she just gets up and starts serving food and they don't get unclean because of this food. Cause Jesus is the one who makes the unclean clean. So that's the, it's not a repudiation of the old Testament. It's a fulfillment of it. And the New Testament affirms this too with Ephesians. Uh, people missed it in Ephesians chapter two. It talks about how the law creates this separation between man and God. And it highlights it with these ideas of you're separated from lepers or you're separated from, you fill it, you fill in the blank here, right? Whether it's sin or, or just other kinds of impurity. But with Jesus, all that separation breaks down and we now have full unity and fellowship with God because he's fulfilled that law. So just like that woman was unclean, she touched him, now she's clean. So we too come to Jesus unclean. And we're made clean. Let me let me read to you this passage from Ephesians. It, it like talks about this. Um, it says, uh, Ephesians 2.11, I'll start there. 
Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, right? They were unclean. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. And that phrase, the dividing wall of hostility refers to the separation of Jews and Gentiles. That was, it was a physical wall in the temple that separated the Jews and Gentiles. And he's like, it's, it's gone. The, the separation is gone by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So this is uh, Christ. Um, let's only summarize it this way. The separation of people that we read about and keeping yourself separated and all that. And we read about that to see that sin does cause separation and that the holy and the unholy are not meant to mix. And then Jesus comes. Now the, the, the cure of course is sacrifice and blood and atonement and all that. Jesus comes, he is the ultimate solution for this. It's prefigured when he touches unclean people and they become clean. And then when he ultimately goes to the cross, it's totally fulfilled. So now through the law, I'm I'm dead to the law, but it's a fulfillment, not a repudiation of the law. That would be an important distinction. Excellent. So this, this next one um, is, is rather loaded. You want to, you want to? Okay. No, yeah. So, so this next one is definitely a loaded question. Okay. And and for those who are just now tuning in, we we are playing uh, the counterpart to this conversation. Uh, we, we're 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 trying to ask what would the opposition say, right? In this in this given situation. So, uh, many would look at the events of like September 11th, right? Of this is a holy war event, right? Where these religious fanatics are flying a plane into the World Trade Center to kill uh, women and children and, and men and all of the alike because we're in this holy war. We, we see kind of like a holy war text here in Deuteronomy. Uh, you know, we see kind of hashing out when they destroy uh, Jericho in the book of Joshua, where old men, uh, young men, women, children, they're all slaughtered at the sword. Rahab is the only one who is left. Uh, how, how is this, how are we to look at this? How is this to be, uh, uh, how are we to understand this this form of justice, if Jesus is saying things like, forgive your enemies, you know, if those who take advantage of you, you should forgive them, turn the other cheek. Doesn't this seem to be really violent and aggressive and, and some would say evil as you can compare these two things and they seem very similar. Yeah. Um, and I want to start again and just say from the start, I don't really want to be in the position where I have to defend the goodness of God to those who think that they can stand in moral judgment over God based upon whatever data they think they have about history. Mm-hmm. I, I think that this is an unwise place for me to put myself in as a Christian. Um, and I think that I want to encourage others to say, the minute you ask, you, you allow yourself to say, I think I can morally condemn God. You are in an incredibly foolish place. I mean, dangerously spiritually foolish place for so many reasons. Uh, for one, like I said earlier, God is the grounding of moral truth. God is the, philosophically, he is the grounding of moral truth. There's no such thing as this is right, this is wrong, morally speaking, without God. I don't see that as even a possibility. And if God, therefore, does something, I already know it's right. 
because God's the one that did it. This is a, a prince. Now I'm not, now I want to come back to the to understanding these things in a minute, but I just want to say that's a super important principle to get in into your heart and mind. If you're not able to say that, I trust God, I trust his acts. If he judges, it must've been good because he's good. It's, it's a philosophical you, standard of transcendence, right? Be philosophically, if we believe that anything is just and moral, it's something that transcends us and God is that transcendence. Yes. Yeah. And, and whatever standard you're using to judge God would have to come from God, in which case you'd just be contradicting yourself to use it against him. Mm-hmm. It's good. If you think that through, yeah. <laughs> I hope that makes sense to somebody. Um, but also, again, there's the simple wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom that's there. You know, So I'm going to say this, I'm not defending God here. Um, I'm not going to defend God. I'm going to say whatever God does is right. Whatever he chooses to do is right, inc- including killing people. And if, if uh, now I understand not being comfortable with that but I can't see not agreeing with it. You know, I can be like, I agree with that. I don't like it. I'm not comfortable with it, but I submit to the sovereignty and goodness of God. Um, but on the, on the same token, I do want to understand this stuff better as I want to understand all of scripture better. And so it's healthy and good to go into these texts and ask what's really going on here. How do I understand this better? Um, let me compare it to 9-11 real quick. Um, the, the main problem with 9-11, the, in my mind, the biggest issue with 9-11, or at least one of the biggest issues is it wasn't from God. Okay, this was not God commanding these these behaviors. It wasn't God, and you can't use the the uh, stuff with you know uh, the conquests of Canaan that kind of thing. You can't use that as uh, justification for future acts. And the reason is because these were clear, specific, one-time commands. They're not repeated principles. There's no holy war triggers in the Old Testament that tell you if A B C happens, go to a holy war. Like that might be true in Islam, but it's not, not according to scripture, not according to the Bible. The general principles are love and care for people, your neighbors, strangers who dwell among you, take care of the people that are downtrodden, help those who are hurting. Sometimes this requires fighting against those who are causing injustice, but there isn't like this kind of holy war triggers. It was like a one-time thing that God did. He didn't give us principles to apply it to future um, situations. Um, but there may be, some things to consider. For instance, um, in the case of the Canaanites, for example, or, or the flood, I mean, that's going to be the biggest one you, you, when you really think about it, um, is that God says over and over again that these acts are because of judgment and because of sin. So God says, yes, these things are happening, but this is my, my judgment upon the wickedness of mankind. It's not just about random acts of violence or or one group of people's angry at another group of people. It's God's acts of judgment against sin. Um, also, there's times where you, you might ask, but what about there's people caught up in those judgments that seem to be innocent? In which case, um, in my own mind, there's a couple things that I would at least try to work through. One is the possibility that, um, that sometimes in some scenarios, it might be morally justifiable to even kill an innocent person in the con- in a greater context. And so like if a plane is hijacked and, we know that plane's going to be driven into whatever building with thousands of people in it, and we shoot it down. We, we, we do so with grief and with sorrow, but we do so justifiably. Does that make sense? Even though there's some innocence on that plane. Um, so there might, there's, there's, these are things to wrestle with. And I don't have all the right answers for all this kind of stuff. I don't pretend to. But these are some of the elements that we need to work through. And um, I would recognize, too, that even if there were innocents caught up in these things, um, God controls their eternal fate. And from a Christian worldview, it, these questions are often asked as though when a person dies, that's the end of their eternity. Um, yet from a Christian worldview, there is, there is the glorious future that God has 
for the fate probably of, of the innocents. I think that babies go to heaven. I'll put it that way. Sure. But there's other factors, and this might really change how you view it. And I'm going to punt to a guy named Paul Copan, who I know you guys are familiar with. And Paul Copan's done a ton of work on this topic. And um, at first, I was really skeptical of his work because I just heard it like here and there. And I'm like, I don't know. And then the more I listened to him, I'm like, wait, he's really been doing his homework. And I think he's made some points. I'll share a few of them here for you guys to think about. Um, basically, it goes like this. The, some of the statements in the Old Testament warfare texts they're using exaggeration and hyperbole. And this is where you go, wait, but wait a minute, Mike, it's literal. I believe the Bible is literal. Well, I believe it means what it in, what was intended to mean, you know, at the time it was written. There's certainly certain statements of exaggeration of hyperbole. Even Jesus does this. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can't, you can't follow me unless you hate your father and mother. I mean, you know, if you want to take that perfectly literally, you can, but that's yeah. the d- total distortion. If your hand causes you to sin. Paul does it with Romans. Cut, yeah, Jacob I loved, kind of- Esau I hated. Yeah. And these are, these are uh, not meant to be taken quite in that same way. So let me give you some examples where he says, he builds a case and he's pretty, pretty smart about how he does it. He says, I'm going to look at other ancient Near Eastern texts and asks, ask the question when they talked about like utterly destroying people, did it mean literally they took them all out? Cause that's, that's where we really, we, we have moral questions, right? He took them all out, all of them really yeah, sort of well, arbitrarily we, all of them wiped out in an instant. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's an Egyptian text from the 15th century BC, and it has uh, Tithmosis the Third, who's an Egyptian leader, oh, boasting about how he, huh? I said good old Tith. Sorry, <laughs> Tith. Um, anyway, he, he's boasting about how he destroyed the army of uh, Mitanni, and he says, "quote They perished completely, as though they never existed." Now Westerners want a lot of specificity and clarity, right? They perished completely as though they never existed. So you'd think that they were completely destroyed. None of them were even left. But historically, this army continued to exist and fight for many years on into the next century after this. So now you could think, well, he was just lying, except we see this over and over again. And they're aware of what's going on. Um, in the Bulletin of Ramesses II, a 13th century BC text, it talks about what was actually barely a victory. It was close to a stalemate between him and Syria. And he says, quote, millions of foreigners, his majesty slew the entire force of the wretched foe from Hatti, as well as all the chiefs of the countries that had come with him. Just totally, they were all completely destroyed and ruined. And we might be thinking, well, they're just, they're just exaggerating because they, they're lying. They're lying on purpose. But what we do is we see this over and over again, like consistently. And so when you see it over and over again consistently amongst people who would know, you, you ask is this like a, like an exaggeration thing? Like this is the way that when they go, dude, that team got annihilated. Just to show their I don't prowess. Mean they them. <laughs> you know? It's some kind yeah, of literary I, figure of speech. It's it's they they just call them warfare texts, and they tend to use exaggeration, hyperbole. Okay, but that doesn't. Okay, that's interesting. I find that really interesting. But how do you how do you bring that to the Old Testament though? How do I bring that idea into the scripture of the Old Testament? And um, what you would look for is you would look for a text that declares that a people group was completely annihilated. And then you would, you would look to see them show up later on, right? If they're completely annihilated and they show up later on, then that means the word completely annihilated doesn't mean completely annihilated. So we have some examples of this actually in the scripture. Um, first, Samuel, first Samuel 15, 20. Is this with King Agag? Says, yeah, this is, this is about the Amalekites. Yeah, Agag. And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission to which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. That's a technical term. Using the Old Testament for 
um, you know, communities or groups of people or, you know, or, or objects that were devoted to destruction. Harem, harem is the, is the term. And so the only the Kings alive, right? Mm-hmm. From the Amalekites, only the King remains. Everyone else is dead. That's what you would think in first Samuel 27, eight, same author. Don't call it contradiction. It's the same author here. It says now David and his men went up and made raids against the Amalekites. Wait, why are they raiding the Amalekites in first Samuel 30? David fights the Amalekites again. And if you read on in 1 Samuel, you see that they're fighting not just the Amalekites, but the Amalekites from the same region. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's really interesting. It sounds like this terminology we're taking very literally might have other connotations. Um, here's another example, Joshua eleven twenty one, And Joshua came at that time and cut off, of the, cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron. Remember that? They were the Anakim, they were cut off from Hebron from Debir and Anab and from the hill country of Judea or Judah and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There's that term again. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Okay. None of them are left in the land of the people of Israel. Well, later we we read in Joshua 15 verses 13 and 14, Caleb goes out to drive the Anakim out from Hebron again, same location. Oh, that's interesting. Um, overall, the implications that we get from Joshua and Judges is these statements of driving them all out. And then later they tell us, and they didn't drive them all out because we realize these are um, figures of speech that we're, they're really weird to us. They don't fit our normal way of speaking, but that is how they talk. And um, No, that was really interesting. I was going to ask you about King Agag um, because w- when you were explaining that this literary genre exists, that was something that bothered me back in Bible school. And I kind of filed it away in things I'll learn one day. Um, yeah. I kind of marked it there. Uh, so that, that's an interesting uh, explanation for some of these texts. I don't know that I've heard that, honestly. I've never yeah, heard and that. I, I want to be careful that I don't go too far with it because I honestly don't know that I don't think that's a one size fits all answer. I think it's a layer that we bring into our understanding of the text. Um, but there's times where I don't know if that, if that really applies. You know, Paul Copan would go so far as to suggest that when it says women and children, that there really probably weren't even maybe children there, at least in some cases. I don't know if he puts it that plainly, but, but it, he kind of implies it. And so I'm going to say, I don't know the full answer there. I feel like that's something I'm, this is something I'm still working through and learning. I would come at it from the, from the <clears throat> standpoint of whatever God does, I trust him. He's the rightful judge, and he it's in his right, in his rights to do as he pleases with creation. And I trust his goodness that what he did was correct, even if I might feel uncomfortable with it. That's and, my position. But I also see that we may have we may be misinterpreting some of these texts literally. Yeah, and we we've got to take into consideration different literary devices. We can't just throw those out completely. Um, no, yeah, you you can ask the question, um, but uh, just as a further clarification, I think for this point, uh, we see it actually in Scripture where God doesn't destroy certain people because their sin hasn't reached its fulfillment yet. It hasn't reached its 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 max apex. He hasn't chosen to judge because he's kind of in the state of uh, of waiting because the sin isn't great enough. So so he is uh, self-contained in his own judgment. He's not just arbitrarily saying, it'd be really convenient if that guy in that nation wasn't there. He's actually saying, hey, the sin of the, might have been the Amorites. The sin of the Amorites hasn't reached fullness, so you can't wipe them out yet. Yeah. And there's a difference between individual sin, it seems, and sort of this sort of cultural sin or like a sin soaked culture and how that culture impacts and affects so many people. And so um, like the, pre-flood, their, 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 their thoughts were evil continually. And this is entire people group. Yeah. It's like a limiting of a, you know, culture moves in directions. 
And it's possible culture can move to a direction where God's like, I'm not going to allow that culture to continue. And so that's an element there. There's other stuff too, like um, Jericho, for instance, seems like as though it was a military base. We think of it as just a city of people, but it seems like it was more of a military base. Uh, Paul Copan says there's no archaeological evidence of a civilian population there. Hmm. Um, and he says the same thing about some of the other locations that we read about them being completely destroyed and that they were uh, often military locations. And hmm. so there's, in other words, we're, we, we don't want to be too... Um, there's a lot of things in that context we're not entirely sure about. Yeah, I, I just want to understand it all. I don't want to... Yeah. Now, I'm not entering this discussion, though, thinking... If I can't find some way out for God, then God's in trouble. I'm like, this is a, a really foolish perspective to have towards the God of creation. This is, um, I'm not his judge. He's my judge. <laughs> and and, that's, if, and that's, if I don't know that, it's, it's almost, all, my, all my theology is going to get messed up. It's almost a default then for you to say, okay, yes, it does seem harsh. You know, maybe there's some things in the Old Testament that make make him look bad, but you want to be careful not to say that he is bad and make that judgment because there may be more going on than you can actually see at this moment in time. We're going to go ahead and assume that we are the center and not God and that our inability to see rightly is hindering us to seeing God's justice. We're going to go ahead and presuppose God is right and I'm seeing this wrong. If I think this is evil, I'm probably not seeing this correctly. And and a common analogy would be like if, if a friend of mine is having a problem with another guy and he comes to me and tells me the story, I'm going to go, you know, I don't know the other side of this story. There may be more going on than what I can make sense of right here. And so I'm going to withhold judgment in this situation until I get all the facts. What was your next question, Michael? Yeah. Um, so this this comes from a guy named Chris who's been uh, commenting, and, and you know I, I think it's it's worth bringing it up, and and you may or may not have an answer to it, but I've, I'm gonna throw it your way anyways. So this is in Second uh, Samuel. God tortures David's baby to death with a sickness, and then allows his wives to be taken and, and given to someone Wait, else. You, I'm and, sorry, could you start that over again? Read it sure, sure. In 2 Samuel, God tortures David's baby to death with a sickness and then allows his wives to be given to someone else and raped. Um, And then in Leviticus uh, 25, this is two different things. I'll just stop there and let you address that one. What do you think about that? Well, that's Um, Yeah, yeah, I I think it's interesting that the word torture was put in there. Did I I hear that right? Yeah, Yeah, I think... think He's taking this. Let's, he's going a little bit more personal with this one, but but either way, I, uh, no. But that's what usually happens at these discussions. Is it's yes, very yes. heated and it's very emotional, and we often try to a- offer a thoughtful, intellectual response to what is an emotional question. Mm-hmm. And to the emotional question, I, I want to say, you are not the judge of God. This is incredible folly that you think you can sit in a place and judge the God of creation. Your soul is in danger when you are shaking your fist at the creator. Yeah. That's, that's what I want to say and say, this is not, you know, the, the, the question of why did God do that? I want to understand that. That's a, that's an important and very good question. But when, the, when it, when I hear emotional words, I start to think there's a whole different thing going on. I think, I feel like if I answer this, it won't matter. And that it will be the, the anger or the, the railing, you know, there's something else going on here. And I think we need to have a humility towards God. And if we don't, it's the beginning of wisdom, man. You're not going to have wisdom on these issues. And so as Christians, we, we, we do wise to not put ourselves in the place where I have to defend God. I, I'm not the defender of God. Um, now, on, on, on that other note, I'll, I'll say that um, I do think that God seems, as I read the passage, it seems as though he um, uh, directly, not just allows the child to die, but it seems as though God 
is, is directly involved in it, yeah. his child dying. And I say, God has a right to do that. He's, and he seems to have some justifications that I'm, that I can be aware of at least. Um, this child is going to be the, the son of the King of Israel. And God knows all the implications of that and how that came from adultery and how that might affect the future line of the Kings and who knows what else the signal it sends to the people of Israel, maybe affirming the adultery and the murder that David did. Maybe this is about, um, uh, what's the term I'm looking for about, um, showing, showing God's disapproval of David's rebellion of David's sin. There could be an element of that there. I also know from a Christian worldview that I think this child went to be with the Lord. In fact, David's what David says about the baby, yeah, you know, I can come go to, to be with him, yeah. but he can't bring him to be with me, you know? And so the implication is of course that this child, you know, this child could look at God in heaven and be like, I know I was born into this crazy situation and I know that you did this Lord, but I trust your sovereignty and I'm in, in your eternal glory and joy for forever. I, I don't think, I don't think the kid's going to have the kind of problem that the skeptic is having with this passage. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, if, if it were to be repeated, you know, why did the sinless son of David die for the sins of David? Like, when it's phrased that way, there's even a rather um, beautiful imagery that the son of David dies for sin. Um, that there is an interesting uh, correlation, possible representation of something that is to come later down the road. Uh, not to yeah. say that the son absorbed the sin of David, but there was some kind of representation that took place. Um, and again, yeah, and there's there's an element of that where I go, I wonder if that could be some kind of typology that's there. I, I don't know. I'm not trying um, to make an authoritative statement for sure. sure. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so what was the second part of that question? Um, oh, <clears throat> but, but I also think that it's, it's fair before we move forward. There's a lot of people who have had a ton of miscarriages and look at that passage to, um, to, to think that they have committed some kind of unforgivable sin oh, and that yeah, God keeps yeah, yeah. killing their children. Um, I would just really, really encourage you not to use a passage like that and, uh, uh weaponize it against yourself and your family. Um, yeah, that, not to do that. And, and I hope yeah, that's what a horrible, that what a horrible thing to have on your heart or mind. Um, yeah. you know, you know how David knew that this was, this was related to his sin because a prophet of God came, came and, and told him. him. That's right. That's how he knew. It wasn't like you just assume if something bad's happening to you, just read your fears into it. And that's, that's not healthy for your heart. And I would encourage people to not do that. I, I you know, the person asking the question, Chris, I, I think I can totally empathize with where he's coming from. You know, he's, he's, uh, coming into the Old Testament going, there's all these passages that, that to, you know, if he's the judge, it makes God look really bad. And I can, I can get that. Um, I, I would, you know, at the same time say there's probably more going on than what you're seeing, but then, um, but at the same time want to recognize, okay, like I'm, I, I see that you're seeing something here. I see that this is hard for you to digest. You, you want to worship a God that's good. And, and obviously, I, I know I'm on thin ice here when we're talking about this, but I'm trying to think how to phrase this. Um, you know, I would if I was worshiping Allah and looking at some of the arbitrary things Allah does, I would probably go shopping for a new God. And I can imagine that people are, are approaching the Old Testament, seeing certain things like this and going, I, I don't know if I can get behind this. Um, um. What do I say to that? Let's see. The idea that um, when I see the story of David and the death of this child, do I see God as um, revealing the wickedness of David's rebellion against God and showing the consequences of sin that he will exact? You know, 
And do I, so do I see how bad sin is or do I see how bad God is? Because generally you will see somebody pick one of those paths to go down with these passages, with all of them. Either sin is really, really bad or sin ain't bad, in which case it must be God. God's mm-hmm. overreacting. God's, God's doing something wrong here. But God continually does this. It's not like the pagan deities of old where they literally for no reason would just kill people. Like it was not justice. It was not holiness with, with scripture. It is God's goodness and holiness and justice. It is sin. Like we have this sin thing to talk about because God keep, gives us that thing to talk about. And so, uh, but I'm either going to see the wickedness of what David did, or I'm going to think that something's wrong with God. Yeah. And I, he think, did it, I think you just hit the heart the of the matter. Of all Israel, you know, in the sight of all Israel, yeah. he did this thing. Yeah. So uh, maybe one of the last questions that we can ask um, kind of comes to one of where there's kind of popular uh, justifications for these actions and these events. Like you said, it's as if we've come to the text and we're like, oh, man, how, how do I find a way of explaining this away? Um, you know, one of you know, we say, OK, maybe maybe the sin is real evil. Maybe God is real evil. Maybe we can kind of work our way, do some some emotional jujitsu around this thing. One of the the interpretations, one of the ways to approach these difficult texts is that God is allowing himself to be misrepresented and misunderstood because of the violent uh, Near Eastern you know, worldview. We, we see this. You mentioned it earlier uh, with Boyd's work on. Uh, crucifixion of the warrior god crucifixion of the warrior god yeah so so he suggests that uh these ancient near eastern people they, they needed a blood sacrifice they needed violence they needed to see this this god of justice so when these events took place they attributed to them to to be a a divine god thing when actually uh god wasn't doing this he was just allowing himself to be misrepresented and i might be Am I misquoting it? Yeah, no, no. He, 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 was, more he was reading of his. Uh, Boyd would say he was donning the image of the ancient Near Eastern gods, that he was willing to take on that um, the, persona. Yeah, that persona for the sake of, of those who he was trying to reach. So he was, you know, many in the same way many missionaries would contextualize the gospel and try to meet people where they're at. God was doing yeah. that in the Old Testament. <laughs> that seems um, okay. Or, or, or I've, I've heard him connected to the cross, and he says in the yeah. cross. Jesus, you know, became sin, he became a curse. So he's like looking bad for us. And so in the Old Testament, when we get you know, portrayals of God, this is how I understand Boyd, um, he's allowing himself to look evil because it's reflecting our vision of God, because it's reflecting our evil. So we're putting on him this wickedness. Then Jesus comes and says, ha, here's the real version of God. Here's who I really am. Um, I have I have a thousand problems with this view, but let me start by saying: Is that another is that episode think- entirely, Mike? Because <laughs> I would love to hear those thousand problems. <laughs> I have a thousand problems with it, but here's a few things I'll affirm. Okay, um, the cross does show us God's character. Jesus Jesus really is this full revelation of God's character. Right? We see we, in Christ, we see God. We see Jesus loving and healing and forgiving and overlooking. Um, but what Boyd he uses those elements, those aspects. But he's not really teaching just that. He uses those elements to, to leverage saying that the Old Testament is literally just totally wrong in many, many places. When it tells you God said this, God did this, God wants this, God likes this, God, God is this way. That the scripture is not an accurate revelation of who God is um, on any sort of plain reading of the text. It's only through what he calls his cruciform hermeneutic or a way of reading the Bible where you say, does that Old Testament passage look like Jesus's attitude to me? It doesn't look like Jesus's attitude to me. So that's not really God. 
And you can just straight up say that scripture is just wrong on things. And I would say this doesn't work for the, the Old Testament um, or the New Testament. And that's part of the problem. It, it, it's this, this artificial um, God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament thing doesn't really work because God is consistent. He is both wrathful towards sin and incredibly loving and gracious and merciful in the Old Testament. And he is both of those things in the New Testament. That's good. And Jesus is both of those things and in the new Testament as well. So for instance, in, in the old Testament, um, you know, gray boy wants to say that it was people's violence addicted minds that sort of made it. So God had to look that way. Um, so when they write, you know, God tells them go enter the land of Canaan and he just wants them to go into the land, but their, their violence addicted minds, they hear go in there and kill everybody. Now, you know, an 11 year old can hear the problem with this thinking, right? This, <laughs> It's like you're just making stuff up. This doesn't make any sense. Now, Greg Boyd has written like a 12 million page book on the topic. And he's very well thought. It's like, I don't know it's how many pages, super long, two volume set. And he's very thoughtful and he's very careful in trying to build his case. But it's nice to know that the simplistic, simplistic evaluation of the case on the surface is just like, wait, what? You know, like, wait, what? You know, and it never, you never really get past the wait, what part, in my opinion. Um, there's an example of this in, of, of what refutes this in Exodus 32, where God tells Moses, leave me alone, Moses. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy the people and destroy the people of Israel because of their, their making of the golden calf. And now if this was coming, now Moses wrote the book, right? So you'd think this had to come from Moses's poisoned mind. He's making God say this, but God didn't really say it. But what we read about is where Moses says, oh, Lord, please don't destroy them. And he intercedes, becoming this beautiful picture of the cross, beautiful picture of Christ, God's <clears> rightful <throat> wrath towards sin, yet the intercession of, of, of one, um, you know, giving grace. And so Moses then here is less violent prone than God, according to Boyd, at least based on his hermeneutic of the Old Testament. So the whole Old Testament just becomes confusing. But this doesn't work for the New Testament either. Um there's, uh, there's places where over and over again, God is given credit for the judgments we see in the Old Testament from a New Testament perspective. In Acts 7, it's God who empowered them to go into the land and take care of the Canaanites, right? This is New Testament. So there's no changing after Jesus. This is long after Jesus, right? In Hebrews 11, we read about this kind of stuff. That it, was, it was God who enabled them to do these things that, that boy would say it wasn't God at all. God just allowed himself to look that way. Then there's passages in the New Testament like this one, 2 Thessalonians 1. Let me read you this passage, um, and then I'll read to you what Greg Boyd says about it. Because you can see it. I don't think I have to work that hard to show the problems with this view. Um, 2 Thessalonians 1.5, it says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. And to grant you grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So, that seems to be a clear statement. Paul understands that it's Jesus who's coming to judge, right? And it's not like a pleasant thing. It's, it's affliction to those who are afflicting you. So it's judgment, especially on those who persecute believers. 
Greg Boyd says this about Paul. He says, Paul seems to be satisfying the Thessalonians and his own and or his own fallen thirst for vengeance to come upon their enemies. And nothing about his socio-religious context seems to alter this impression. So he can actually take a passage that you would on the surface just thinks talking about Jesus coming to judge. And he's like, nah, the cross tells me Jesus wouldn't do that sort of thing. And I'm like, this is weird. Uh, this is really weird. It's super complicatedly weird, but yeah. it's really weird. We see this a lot in in the circles that I that we're in, in a lot of ways, uh, where people will talk about uh, miracles and healings and those kinds of things, and we'll see sickness and disease, and the assumption is, well, God would never use those things. We see Jesus heals the sick. God would never send a plague. God would never make someone mute. God would never make someone blind. God would never, and, and we would say, because we see Jesus here doing this, he would never do these things anywhere else. Mm-hmm. except that we see that in the Old Testament and, and we see new. that in the New Testament, right? Paul has caused Some people Some of you have, yeah. have fallen asleep yeah. because you're you know, getting drunk off the Lord's Supper. and So it's, yeah. it's rather interesting to, to just use Jesus <laughs> as a scapegoat in a sense to just ignore the parts of the Bible that we don't like and appealing to Jesus as if you know, he, he displays that he would never judge. He would never uh, you know, make our lives uncomfortable or difficult. He's here to serve us and make all things better. <laughs> Yeah. Or the idea, you know, because the thing is, Greg's going to have, Greg Boyd's going to have interpretations for all the passages I'm bringing up. Right. And he's going to have, I'm just saying they don't work. That's all I'm saying is I I know they exist, but let me give you another example. Revelation 610. It's now, this is New Testament reflection, right? In fact, this is, you know, the latter part of the New Testament here, book of Revelation. Yeah. We should at this point have from the disciple of love, John, right? (laughs) We should have, this guy should know that God hates judgment for the sake of, you know, retributive kind of judgment. Um, But instead, that's exactly what it looks like. Revelation 6.10, it says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These are saints in heaven crying out for God to avenge. And then later, Revelation 16, verses 5 and 6, it's like God answers them. It says, and I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Now, he would have to say this is, this is um, John's, you know, wrong. John hears, he's receiving a revelation and vision. He's just quoting what it ain't, but it must be his polluted mind that's forcing. It's like God's not omnipotent enough to say, hey, John, write down that I like don't ever judge people like that way. You know, I'm, I would never have retributive violence. You know, that's, violence is all evil. Please write that down, John. And John's like, no, you'll make him drink blood, Lord. Like that's yeah. just, it's all coming from John. But the, now here's the problem too. Another one of them, this is problem number 17 with this view. <laughs> uh, 17 of a thousand. <laughs> yeah. And the, the issue is that he's trying to use Jesus as like a, um, as like a skeleton key that you can plug into any passage and you can turn it and it will get rid of all the violence or, or wrathful kind of content that might happen in that passage. Well, Jesus doesn't work that way because Jesus himself seems to affirm some of the things that he's opposed to here. And so you'll actually find guys like Boyd, um, I don't know if he does this or not, but guys in his camp where they actually have to say, yeah, that, you know, that portrayal of Jesus must be wrong. So it doesn't even, even granting them that you can use Jesus to overturn the Old Testament, which I don't grant, 
it still doesn't work because Jesus overturns that view that he's going to overturn the Old Testament. That's right. And in Luke 18, he talks about the, the woman who appeals to the unjust judge. And then he, he applies it and says, won't God get vengeance for you if you keep appealing to him? Wait a minute, Jesus, this is like, seems the opposite of what they're saying. Let me give you another passage, Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. I'll read it to you. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Uh, he had killed these Galileans. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, this blows my mind because you you would expect in our modern um, our modern Western culture, you'd expect Jesus to say, they didn't deserve it. They did not deserve what happened to them. Jesus seems to say the opposite. And he's like, you think they were worse? You think that's why they got it? Because they were worse than you? I'll tell you what, you're going to get it too if you don't repent. Wait, Jesus, hold on. You're not acting like Jesus, Jesus, you know? <laughs> and then in verse three, he, he uh, or verse four, he goes on and he gives another example. He says, are those 18 on whom the, the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? So kind of like a random tragedy, a tower fell and killed people. He says, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Sin is worse than we think. That's what we're getting from the Old Testament. That's what we're getting from the judgments God brings on sin. And we're getting it from the words of Jesus. Sin is a lot worse than we think. Jesus talks about the, when he talks about the, the coming of the son of man, he talks about it like he's bringing wrath and judgment, you know, to, to some people and salvation and grace to others, depending on the life they chose. And so the sheep and the goats and about how they'll get everlasting punishment. Then in uh, Revelation 21, here we have one of the latest things we have recorded of Jesus saying, Revelation 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 21. He says this about this woman, Jezebel, who's seducing the churches. And he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all churches will know that I am he who searches the searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, the phrase children, they're probably talking about her followers. It's not physical children. It's the, those who are following her false mm -hmm. teachings. So my point is that when you're using your idea of Jesus to say the Old Testament is wrong, but your idea of Jesus is refuted by Jesus, you should stop. <laughs> you should stop what you're doing. I think Boyd's vision of Jesus, I think Boyd's vision of Jesus is partially true. The incredible grace and love and goodness of Christ, the God forgiving and embracing the wicked and making a way for us to come to Christ. That part is absolutely true. But to set that against the reality of judgment and the wickedness of sin is, um, is to distort what the message of the cross is because the cross reveals both, right? It reveals God's wrath on sin. It also reveals God's incredible grace towards humans. That's good. Hey, Mike, now, there's, let me say one more thing. Last sure. thing I'll say about this. And you, <laughs> and you can I'm, I'm enjoying it. So... <laughs> All right. Here's my last comment on, on this, uh, unless you have more questions. But when I look at this, I, I'm like asking myself, if the hermeneutic is so bad that there's just constantly verses after verse after verse that seems to refute it, then what fuels the hermeneutic? What fuels people to go after it? And that's where I get worried because here's, I think the most, and I don't know if I'm not saying Greg Boyd attends this at all. I'm not saying he intends it. Okay. I, and I don't think he does, but I think pragmatically, when he tries to bring his case to people, the most effective tool in his arsenal is demonizing the Old Testament or demonizing various passages of scripture. Because how do you get people to, to agree with you that what it, the Bible says, God said such and such, 
God didn't say that. You, you get them to think that it's unconscionable that God said that. So that's where Greg Boyd sounds very much like the skeptic shaking their fist at God, who's saying, boy, this, this, uh, this portrayal of God is so horrific, it couldn't be God. Look how terrible it is. And so he'll, you know, I offer these sort of, you know, explanations to try to help us understand it, help us understand the, the harshness of it, or maybe it's not even as harsh as you might think. Or he'll do the exact opposite. He'll, he'll invert that picture and offer it as harsh and as uncharitable as possible. And here I think it's doing a lot of harm because either you'll get on board with his view or you'll, or potentially you won't get on board with his view, but you'll believe his caricature of the Old Testament and you'll think that it's wicked. And that to me does great harm. Yeah, there, there's an individual in church history by the name of Marcion that um, I find this seems eerily similar to, um, that he wanted to kind of unhitch the Old Testament and the, the vengeful God of the Old Testament in light of Jesus, because Jesus is the exact representation of the Father's nature, you know, who holds all things by the word of his power. So, so we clearly misrepresented a lot of that stuff in the Old Testament. This is the real stuff in the New. Forget all that Old Testament stuff. And, and he was marked as a heretic by the early church. And I know that there are some who'd say, this is not that. Um, but I, I would encourage those to go back and read some of the, that, those conversations because there are some striking similarities between the two. Uh, and I think that, that we, when we study some stuff that's old, we find out that a lot of this new stuff just gets repackaged with a little bit of nuance, and uh, it's basically the same stuff. So uh, we're, we've got to wrap up this video. Mike, thanks so much for coming on. Tell people where they can find you again uh, for, for those who aren't familiar with your ministry. Well, I mean, you could just, if you just Google me, Mike Winger, W-I-N-G-E-R, um, you can find me on YouTube. That's where I do like live streams, usually every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And I put up usually at least two videos a week um, doing theology, apologetics. I'm teaching through the Gospel of Mark, and I'm doing a series on penal substitutionary atonement right now. Uh, those are the two things I'm working on. And, um, and you can also get it on podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. And there's a Bible Thinker app now that for your smartphone. You can download and you can check that out. It's, uh, it's all free. And uh, no in-app purchases or anything like that. You're so tech so, savvy. Uh, yeah, that'd be the way to find me. Cool. Well, Mike, we, we really love you, your, your ministry. We love everything that you're doing out there. We highly recommend you frequently on the show, off the show. Oh. Uh, we think that you guys, you guys, you, you're, you're your own crew. You know, we've got help over here. Uh, but uh, we think that you're doing a great job over there. Uh, even when you're doing your yeah. critiques, we think that they're fair, that they're balanced, they're honest. Um, so highly recommend that for anybody who's on our channel and is not already following you just got to be a pretty slim group <laughs> but, well, thank yeah, you guys. Sure. Yeah, but we uh we, we enjoy your ministry man uh, any closing thoughts michael no i just super appreciated you addressing some of the boyd stuff I, I read the two volume work and was i mean it bothered me i was i was having a hard time making sense of everything going well gosh if he's true then how much of the old testament am i actually like can take just at face value it's just super hard anyway uh, i really appreciated it cool yeah. Well, uh, yeah, and just so you guys know, Paul Copan, he's done way more stuff than me on it. If you, anybody wants to do more homework on it, go look up Paul Copan's book. He has his book, Is God a Moral Monster? Um, he has a couple different books that would, would help people on this topic. I'm actually going to get it. I'm going to put that on my Amazon list right now. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for watching uh, this episode of Remnant Radio. You can find us every Monday night, 8.30 p.m. Central Standard Time on the YouTubes at The Remnant Radio. Uh, we've got a lot of really exciting guests coming up in the near future. We've got Andrew Wilson, uh, who is frequently in the Gospel Coalition. He was with us uh, at Why the Convergence push, Conference. Why pushing your hand at me like that? I don't know. I just feel like i got to talk to somebody. Uh, we got Dr. Michael Brown coming on. we got Dr. Michael Heiser coming on twice in December. We've got Robert Salirden. We've got uh, Dr. Doug Weaver. We've got tons of really, really good guys coming on the show. So you guys stay tuned, and we'll see you then. Blessings. <laughs>